0: Now I wonder if, uh, as you sat there and heard that reading, you wondered in your heart or your mind, in the world that we live today, with all the things that we face today, what, what does a three and a half thousand year old ritual, like what we've just heard, have to say to us today? How is that relevant? Let's get a bit of perspective. Probably for an ancient Israelite, and in fact, anyone who lived in the ancient world, three of the biggest things that they had to wrestle with in life would have been what's the weather going to be? Will there be drought? Will there be floods? Are my crops going to grow? Will the weather take away my livelihood? Secondly, what if I wake up in the morning and one of my children has died of a sickness? Or what if there's a plague that goes through the whole community and all of our lives are cut short by sickness and disease? Thirdly, what, what about all the raging nations around us? What if our hostile neighbours decide to invade us and take over us? What if our sons are sent out to fight in war? So there's there's nothing new under the sun, is there? The big issues that we are wrestling with today are really the same issues that uh, humanity has always been wrestling with, no matter how... Far back we go, and if we if we try and tackle these issues just on the surface, on the horizontal level, without a solid foundation to stand on, then we'll, we will be like the man that Jesus spoke of, who built his house on sand, and when the storms came, there was a great fall, and he was destroyed. We need the solid foundation. So that when those things come, we're not just dealing with them and trying to deal with them on that level and and they end up destroying us because we have something solid to stand on. Well, for the Israelites, God's law, as it was there in the Ark of the Covenant, howls in the tabernacle, that was their foundation. That no matter what happened, whether it was floods or... Plagues or war, their God was their God, and He dwelt among them. And they could withstand, they could stand firm in all of those things because their foundation was in him. As we've been seen and as we'll continue to see, this foundation that the Israelites had point us to the solid foundation that we now have in Jesus Christ. If we are in him, uh, none of the turmoil of this world in which we live is going to destroy us. Now before we uh, look in detail at this Day of Atonement, I thought it would be help for us, helpful for us briefly to see uh, the the five main categories of sacrifices that are outlined and prescribed in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Uh, and how each of them conveyed a specific message and that will help us to understand why those specific sacrifices were made uh, in the Day of Atonement. Uh, Firstly, there are the burnt offerings. This, in a sense, was a foundational offering. Uh, In this sacrifice, the animal carcass was burnt up on the altar as a symbol that the wrath of God had come upon this substitute in the place of the sinner. And so now the way is open for that sinner to uh, approach God. This uh, universal nature of this offering was emphasised by the fact that the animal that was offered would differ depending on the financial status of the person. The bull was the largest and most expensive animal to sacrifice, right down to a young pigeon, in other words, a, just a chick, a tiny little bird. Now, as an interesting aside, we know that Jesus was born into a poor family because at his dedication in the temple, Mary and Joseph offered two pigeons. This burnt offering said to the people, you are no longer children of wrath, but you are under the grace and the favour of the Lord who has forgiven your sins and reconciled you to himself. Then there's the grain offering. This was an offering of thanksgiving uh, and very often it was offered alongside the burnt offering as an expression of Gratitude for God's provision in the harvest, and gratitude for this forgiveness of sins. Uh, it was an offering that was offered especially at the time of the first fruits of the harvest. Your grain, your 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 wine, your olives would be brought as a thanksgiving offering. As I said, the grain offering and the burnt offering were often together, and There was a burnt offering and a grain offering that took place in the tabernacle twice a day, one at sunrise and one at sunset. So the people were reminded that whether they were asleep or awake, at the beginning and at the end of every day, they were covered by the grace and mercy of God. Then... The sin offering. We've skipped over one, which we'll come back to in a moment. The sin offering is what, for what English Bibles often translate, unintentional sins. Now the word there doesn't really mean uh, a sin done without realizing it was a sin or done by mistake. Although that's covered in this offering, what it's referring to is sin that has not been repented of, as opposed to, uh, sorry, sin sin that has been repented for, as opposed to high-handed sin, sin that is premeditated and deliberately malicious. Now, in those cases, with high-handed sin, the law dealt with that. It prescribed punishments for those people. The only way to bring about justice to a high-handed sinner, an unrepentant sinner who didn't want to receive mercy, was to make them bear the punishment in themselves. That was the justice that was carried out by the law. Uh, Those people were those who were described uh, in Hebrews 10 where it says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgement and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. But this sin offering wasn't for those cases of high-handed sin, but those who recognised the sinfulness of their actions and the fact that they needed to receive mercy. Then the guilt offering. This was made when a person's sin had very direct and identifiable consequences for another person. They've they've sinned deliberately or or accidentally in a way that's caused harm to a person. And this offering was always made in conjunction with a payment of compensation to that person. And we looked at that offering briefly a couple of weeks ago. We saw how it demonstrates that justice and mercy work together, hand in hand. It's an offering that enabled the Israelites to express reconciliation both to the Lord and to their neighbour. Then the peace offering, which um, remember the structure of Leviticus where the central one is the key one and the peace offering is actually in between these, uh, in the middle of these four offerings. This combined a sacrifice, like a burnt offering, with a meal and it symbolised fellowship between the worshipper and God and between one another in the community. So part of the offering would be burnt up on the altar and the rest would be eaten by the priests, the worshipper, and they could invite their friends and family to be part of this meal. Now out of the five types of offerings, this was the voluntary one because it was an expression of the freedom in which... They fellowshiped and lived. As they ate the offering, they were symbolically eating at the Lord's table, enjoying his hospitality. The Passover was this kind of offering. They they actually ate the lamb that was sacrificed. And that's why, now that the Passover has been transformed into the Lord's Supper, we call it Holy Communion. Fellowship with one another. Now, the peace offering and the grain offering, along with the fellowship offering, they're the two kinds of offerings in mind behind the New Testament's uh, statements about Christians making offerings. So, for example, in Hebrews 12, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So instead of offering the first fruits of our fields, in the grain offering, we offer the fruit of our lips and We share our physical resources with those around us in need. And in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We offer our whole selves to be used in the service of God, but not as a sacrifice that needs to be killed. It's a, a living sacrifice. And then we see that Paul described himself as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the Gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here, the people who have received the Gospel are the offering, uh, given in thankfulness for the once-for-all offering made by Jesus. So this background to these, these offerings are good for us to know then as we come to this Day of Atonement and to see why it is the central focus of the book of Leviticus. On this Day of Atonement there were four animals offered The bull, two goats, and the ram. And there are two types of offerings, uh, sacrifices that are made. There's the burnt offering and the sin offering. So the ram was there as the burnt offering, which was offered at the end of this whole ceremony. But remember, this is the the offering that's twice daily offered as a reminder of both their sin and of the assurance that the Lord was merciful towards them. The burnt offering kind of paved the way for the grain offering and the peace offering. Like I said, it was a foundational offering, but there was a problem. The people, by their sin had defiled themselves, they defiled the land, and they defiled the tabernacle itself. They tainted the cleanness, the holiness of this place of worship. So the, the burnt offering couldn't be offered in a place that was unholy or unclean. It had to be offered in a purified, sanctified place of worship and it must be offered by a purified, sanctified priest. So the fact that they sinned day in and day out, even at times without realising that they'd sinned posed a continual threat, humanly speaking, to this arrangement in which the Lord was their God and his dwelling place was amongst them. So before the burnt offering could be given, three other animals need to be offered to provide atonement or a covering to make sure that the tabernacle remains this holy dwelling place of God among his people. So the first, the sin offering, was the bull. And as I said, the biggest, most expensive of the sacrifices. Last week we saw that a bull was sacrificed at the consecration, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Such a large and expensive offering was required for such a high role in Israel. And in a sense this offering of the bull was a renewal of his ordination, his consecration, ensuring the people that this person who went on their behalf into the holy places was truly, as we've heard before from um, Hebrews 7, a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. What good is it if you bring your offering to the tabernacle if the priest who then offers it on your behalf is disqualified by their uncleanness, unable to go in and stand before the Lord for you. If the mediator between you and God is impure, then you yourself are cut off from God. So before dealing with the sins of the people, the high priest must first go in, sprinkle the blood of the bull on the mercy seat, but not before putting extra incense on the altar within the tent so that the cloud would fill the Holy of Holies and hide the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant from view. So even when he's behind the veil, there's a barrier between him and the Lord's holy presence. It's only after atonement is made for his sin that he's then qualified to come back in and offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people. Now, the book of Hebrews highlights how this offering points us to Jesus, not the sacrifice of the cross, but the fact that Jesus didn't need to make an offering for himself. Hebrews says, "...for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins." He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Verse 2, there is, is the good news. The Levitical priest could identify with people's weaknesses But it was also his limitation because he was weak in being, like us, a sinner. And so his ministry was imperfect because he himself needed a sacrifice. But by contrast, we're told, speaking of Jesus, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the perfect son who took on our weaknesses as human beings but not the kind of weakness that leads to sin. So while the offering that the high priest makes for himself, help the people to know that he is qualified, then to, in an ongoing way, present their sacrifices, there was still this caveat. Your high priest is a sinner just like you, and so the offerings that he's making, if he's to do that, there must be an atonement, a repeated atonement for his sin. This was designed to make them long for the day when they would finally be given that perfect High Priest who's unstained by sin. So now the High Priest is ready to make the sin offering for the people. And did you see how this offering actually has two aspects, which is why it requires the two goats? The first goat is the sin offering. There we are. And it serves the same purpose in essence as the bull. It atones for sin. It deals with confessed sin. It deals with forgotten sin. It deals with ignorant sin. It's the covering that means that anything that was missed in all of their offerings through the previous year is dealt with. It's In a way, it's a a once and for all, or at least once for the year ahead. The blood sprinkled on the mercy seat ensures that the Lord will continue to make his dwelling among his people. And then the blood smeared on the horns of the altar of sacrifice means he will continue to be pleased with their offerings, at least for another year. Now, like the priests, this offering was imperfect. Not that it was unacceptable, but it was insufficient because it was the blood of an animal. It provided a temporary external holiness, but not that permanent internal holiness that would be accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice. This is. uh, Where are we? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's that external holiness, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the internal holiness. So this first part of the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, points us to Jesus and how his death was a sin offering for us in which he bore our sin in himself. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But there's a second part of this offering, the other goat. And this goat, in a way, communicates the same truth but from a different perspective, from the perspective of the curse. As the first goat pointed to Jesus becoming sin for us, the second goat points to him becoming a curse for us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse is the ongoing consequence of sin. It was because Adam and Eve sinned that the curse came upon them and upon creation. Now to be cursed is essentially to have the blessing of God removed. They're not a spell that's put on people by witches or as if they're some kind of uh, bad spiritual energy or power. All curses in the Bible actually come from the hand of God. They are the present day expression of his judgement upon sin and it's displayed then in dysfunction, in distortion, Uh, in the futility of creation and in the giving over of people, as Paul says in Romans, to the outworking of their sinful lifestyles. It's because of this curse on creation that there were things that were designated as unclean, anything that showed a distortion of God's good creation. And these unclean things were just this constant reminder for Israel that creation is cursed because of sin. And so therefore anyone who sins comes under God's curse. Remember what the curse meant for Adam and Eve. They were expelled from Eden, Eden. away from God's presence, into the toil and the pain of life in which God seems distant and inaccessible. And the law reflected this principle. Anyone who sinned with a high hand in such a way that they degraded another person's humanity, such as murder, rape, dishonouring parents, or a a sin that was a direct attack on God himself, like idolatry. These... Crimes in Israel were all punishable by the death penalty, the ultimate banishment from the community of God, and the death penalty was always carried out outside the camp. So, the second goat is an embodiment of this curse. Aaron lays his head, his hands on the head of the goat symbolically transferring to it all of the sins of Israel that have made them unclean. And then having taken on all their sin, this goat becomes the ultimate cursed creature and it's banished, not just to outside the camp, but to a remote area. The literal translation of that word, Azazel, Uh, Some scholars say maybe it was the name of a uh, a supposed demon, Uh, maybe it was a a place, kind of the remote place in the mountains where only the goats could live. Uh, But the word itself contains a combination of uh, a word that refers to a goat and a word that refers to being out or away. Hence, traditionally in English it's been translated as the scapegoat the goat who is sent away. This goat isn't being offered to a wilderness spirit. It's carrying the sins of the people far away and with it the curse of sin. I'm sure that David had this scapegoat offering in mind when he wrote Psalm 10312. As far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The scapegoat was a, a picture that said to the people in the words of Isaiah 42, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Now we know that God's not forgetful. The reason he doesn't remember our sins isn't because he's brushed them under the carpet or forgotten, it's because he's dealt with them when Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus was taken outside the city gates to a place where slaves and murderers and traitors were crucified. There he was hung on a tree. He became our scapegoat when in our in him our sins were carried far away and remembered no more. So these two goats give us a a holistic picture of the salvation that the Father has accomplished for us in Jesus. The goat for the sin offering had its blood shed in the place of sinners, and the blood was taken right into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. So we see that God himself in Jesus has borne our sin in himself to make the way clear for his dwelling among us. And then the scapegoat bears the totality of sin and becomes a curse and takes away our sin and removes it fully and finally, never to be remembered, never again to be held against us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Have you received that full, free, no condemnation? There's something else that I need to say about this Day of Atonement. It would have been horrific to watch, let alone participate in. Let's think again about what took place. The high priest is dressed not in his elaborate robes but in an undergarment, a coat, a sash and a turban, all made of linen. At the beginning of the ceremony he washes his body and then he puts on these clean white clothes. But then what happens next? He slaughters a bull... And he does it in such a way that all of the blood from the bull has to come out. And then he dismembers the carcass so that some of it can be burnt on the altar and the rest taken outside the camp. Now after doing that, how clean and white do you think his clothes are now? And he's told to sprinkle the blood... Using his fingers. So this high priest goes into the most holy place with his clothing spattered in blood and with blood on his hands. And that's just the first sacrifice. There's two more animals to be slaughtered, and with each more blood on his clothes and blood on his hands. By the end of the ceremony he would have looked more like an abattoir worker than a priest. And then add to that the sounds, the sounds of bleating goats and rams and the mewing of the bull and then the cries of those animals as they are slaughtered. Then add to that the smell, the smell of blood and of offal and of dung and the thick smoke of the fire from the altar. If we'd witnessed this ceremony, we would describe it using our first twenty first century language as brutal and violent and even primitive. I imagine that few of us could actually stomach watching it. We'd we'd want to call the RSPCA and report them for animal cruelty. But we shouldn't think that the Israelites just stood around dispassionately and saw this all happen. There was never meant to be in this ceremony a time of peaceful worship and contemplation like we expect when we come to church. The confronting bloody nature of this ceremony, and in fact all of the daily sacrifices in the tabernacle. It's a deliberate design. It's meant to shock and to confront and to offend. It's even it's meant to make us sick at the thought of what was happening because it's meant to convey to us the brutal, shocking, primitive and violent nature of our sin and to point us to what was required for Jesus to endure as he faced the judgement that our sin deserves. Have you ever heard the saying, Jesus loves you so much that even if you were the only person in the world, he would still have come to die for you? That's true. It's also true that if you were the only person in the world your sin would still require such a bloody violent death on a brutal cross to sufficiently pay for your sin and my sin. The brutality, the ugliness of the animal sacrifices are eclipsed by the brutality of Jesus' suffering and death. He he endured the cruelest most painful form of execution that human beings had devised. If we had witnessed his death, it would have turned our soft 21st century stomachs. But the manner of his death conveys to us the horror of our sin and the magnitude of wrath that we deserve and at the same time It shouts to us of the measureless love of God that the son should be willing to endure such horror of not only the physical pain and violence, but the anguish of being forsaken by his father and given over to the grave, becoming sin for us, becoming a curse for us. We can so easily and so readily sentimentalise the cross. And we dumb down the Gospel to match the world's spirituality that says you're a wonderful person with a destiny and all you need to do is look within yourself and find that deep spring of goodness and learn to live into your potential. That's the Gospel that's we've been told all the time in the world. But in contrast to that, Jesus, in some of his least popular teaching, says that if we look within ourselves, what we'll find is only a deep spring of sin. He said, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And then all of those things he took upon his own shoulders and went to the cross. The solution to the brutality and horror of human sin isn't to look within ourselves, but to look outside of ourselves, to look to the cross, to see that the God who hangs there loves us so much that He is willing to look in our faces and give us the diagnosis of our sin, that it deserves death, that it deserves spilled blood and the fire of wrath. But in that same diagnosis, we see that he, he hangs there and he spills his own blood. He endures his own wrath and he enters the grave so that we may live. There's a hymn by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, that expresses this, I think, very profoundly. And really, this hymn really lays the foundation for why he could write a hymn called Amazing Grace. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood, had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which says... I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed.